0: Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back for episode 153 of the Freight 360 podcast. We are broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, but you are broadcasting from where, Ben?
1: Well, I am in Isla Mirada, down in the Keys.
0: There you go, man. Love it. Something oh, good weather. stuff. Good stuff. How, so let me ask you this: for those who don't know the, the the Keys, it's what it's a couple hour drive from where you live in South Florida. But what's uh what's kind of like the the vibe of Key West and whatnot? But like, what's the what's the vibe down there on on Route One as you or Highway One as you make your way off the tip of Miami? Well,
1: It's way different. It's really funny, because even when we first came down here a couple years ago, I was like, the fact that I was even just going to go vacation at the ocean seemed kind of ridiculous, because we live a mile from the ocean. I'm like, I don't know how much difference it's going to be. But it was during COVID. We're like, all right, just get the hell out of the house to be somewhere else. And it is very different. I mean, just way more laid back vibe, even than in like, South Florida, everybody's just kind of taking it easy. And it's just gorgeous. Like you just look off from pretty much anywhere you are. And it looks like the horizon just meets the ocean. It's just like the exact same
0: color, bright blue. So that's one of the things you said is like the vibes different. Like, so I've been to Florida a ton of times. My, my mom and stepdad retired down there in Fort Pierce. So like whenever, whenever I go, it feels to me like I'm on vacation relaxing, but the rest of the people around me, like they're living their day-to-day life. When you get to the Keys, like I remember being in Key West, like Everyone's got that island vibe, yeah. and everyone's like just there to have a good time and relax.
1: So good for well, you, even guys, the man. employees, all. right? Yeah, even when you're in the stores or in the shops, everybody's just kind of laid back, kicking it, not worried.
0: Yep. Definitely. Well, we got a good episode today. We're going to be talking about um, how much does a freight broker earn, and some of the different roles, and kind of how those how you construct your account package for employees that you bring on uh, as you're growing your brokerage. Um, but first, if you're brand new here, welcome to Freight 360. Check out all the other episodes in our library and check out the content on our YouTube channel. If you've been with us for a while, we appreciate the continued listenership. Keep sharing us with your friends in the industry and your colleagues and keep sending us your questions. We're getting, we're getting overloaded with the questions. We can't answer them all on the show, but we're going to get to the ones that are we think are the most beneficial each week. So um, quick little sports recap here. NFL preseason has kicked off. So I didn't get a chance to watch the Steelers game. I don't know if, if you saw anything about it. I think, I think they lost. I mean, it's preseason. It doesn't really matter. But um, the Bills, man, here's what's interesting. The Bills played on Saturday this past weekend and didn't play any starters at all. It was the mm-hmm. entire like second string or further down in the depth chart. But they played against the starting lineup from the Indianapolis Colts. So, oh, um, yeah. The only I'll starter that didn't play for the Colts was Jonathan Taylor. who's He's a beast. But the entire rest from QB to receivers, you know, all the way down to your, your linemen, like, they had the starters out there. I thought what was funny is the opening drive, Buffalo has the ball. And Buffalo's second or, you know, backup offense drove all the way down to like the four-yard line um, against the starting defense from the Colts. And then instead of kicking a field goal, the coach McDermott wanted them to practice a fourth- Fourth down and four, uh, and they, they didn't convert it. But they rolled. I mean, ninety six yards down or whatever if it was a touchback, I forget. But they rolled all the way down there. So it was it was a pretty good look for the for the Bills um, backup. It was a lot of turnovers on the Bills, but they pulled off a win. They won by a field goal at the end of the game. Um, we did. We drafted a, a a kicker or a punter, and they call him like the punt god. And he had like an eighty two mm-hmm. yard punt in the game. It was insane. So. Wow. Good stuff. I'm just excited to see football back on. You know.
1: Oh yeah, plus that's a whole of a good showing.
0: Yeah, but I'll be I'll be in your neck of the woods later this week in um, Pittsburgh, checking out a couple Red Sox games there at PNC Park. I'm excited, man. I got to get that sandwich you were telling me about and give my review on on next week's show. So it'll be worthwhile. <laughs> be good it stuff. It will
1: not disappoint.
0: Yeah. Anything else going on? I mean, we've got the. Is it live or L I V? What do we call this new golf league? I think it's. We'll
1: just go with live, but I think it's L I V because it stands L-I-V. for the Roman numerals fifty-four, which is how many holes they
0: play. I thought it was if you birdied every hole, your score would be fifty-four. Or Am I crazy? It could be either or. I don't know. Maybe I don't it's really both. followed much of it. Yeah, could be. What? Oh, anyway. Well, we'll see we'll see what's going on as we progress throughout the NFL preseason here and uh, I'll be going to the there's like on this coming Saturday is uh, Kids Day at the Bills Stadium. Bills are hosting the Denver Broncos. So, we'll be taking the, our kids there to for their first first nice. Bills game action. It'll be fun. So, All right. Well, um let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT and then we've got an article that has DAT as uh, well, we'll get into it. We've got a fun one here.
1: Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners. Plus, you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data... You can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for a free month of Power Express or Trucker's Edge.
0: Absolutely. All right. So the article, and you actually, you found this one. It came from our, our folks over at uh, Freight Waves. They all, I feel like they're, dude, they're on top of it when it comes to to news. So if you, I'll tell you this too as a little tip. If you're new in brokerage, obviously we, we put out great great content, but if you want to stay up to date on like the news, in the transportation world, sign up for the Freight Waves newsletter. I think it's every day they send one out, right? And it has all your your headlines of anything related to logistics, transportation, truckload, air, ocean—you name it. Um, but this one was pretty good, and it's about uh, DAT and Convoy. And if you don't, if you don't know who Convoy is, um, we've talked about them on the show in the past. They they kind of started up as like this digital freight brokerage, um, like. I don't know, a couple of years ago and their whole, their whole like theory was we're going to, we're going to connect shippers directly with, um, you know, available carriers in the market that are out there. And I'm like, so they're pretty much either a load board or they're a brokerage, you know, they call themselves a, a digital freight broker to try and, you know, connect shippers directly with carriers and all that stuff. So then what what happened here? You sent the article. I did, I did read through it, but give me the skinny on it.
1: So it looks like, I mean, while DAT is asserting that while they were under contract with um, DAT to use their load board and to push all their business through it, that there is a non-compete so that they weren't able to build out a competing product while they were connected to and using DATs. And so that's both sides of it, right? The interesting thing, and this is the line I was going to read that we were just talking about right before was, DAT said in its filing that Convoy had been building the platform as far back as 2020, while the contract was still in force. DAT's evidence is based on language in Convoy's November 18th press release, in which it said, the load board launch was the result of more than a year of effort. So, yeah, so they, like,
0: they, they kind of like, <laughs> they kind of turned them themselves up. in, but like the, I guarantee whatever PR or marketing person wrote that did not think about the yes. legal ramifications, but they're like almost trying to like, I don't want to say brag, but like they kind of yeah. want to put the, the spotlight on like, man, we put so much time and effort into this and it's like so much time, but you were mm-hmm. under contract, which prevented you from building this out during that time. So they kind of, they kind of, you know, forged their own silver bullet to to, you know, give ammo to DAT against them in court. So, yeah,
1: it'll be interesting how it plays out. I mean, the other side is Convoy saying that, well, like, hey, you shouldn't be able to prevent anybody from being able to pursue another business venture. And they're like, well, yeah, but it's identical to what you're contracting with us for. So it's not like it's even differentiated. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: Yeah. So um, look, it says Convoy became a DAT customer in 2016 and then renewed their contract two years later. And I think it said it was a three-year contract, which would have pushed them up through 2021. So yeah, November of 21, when they had the press release, that would have been... Um, they're basically saying back to at least 2020, they were working on mm-hmm. this. So yeah, that's a yeah, they, they, they kind of blurred over the lines there a little bit, but interesting. I don't, You know, this is what happens with anything legal and this same concept applies to now competes if you're an employee leaving a brokerage is anybody can file legal action against anybody for any reason, right? I could go and sue you and yeah. say that, you know, whatever, anything. fill in the blank. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? What matters is if it gets in front of a judge, what is the judge going to say, <clears throat> right? So, and that's why you see like a lot of these companies and we'll, you know, we can kind of, we'll, we'll blend in the, the non-compete stuff with W-2s as we talk about freight brokers and their earnings and whatnot. Um, but the, the whole concept of, of filing a legal action against anybody is a lot of times used as like, this is my off- offensive aggression showing, I'm, I'm basically making a stand to try and scare you right? That's usually like the first intent. And when it's company to company, like they kind of expect this stuff, right? Like you you and I have have both been through enough legal issues, or I, w- I don't want to say issues, legal things as both brokers and business owners that, um, you know, we're, we're privy to this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's just kind of how the, the world of business works. But if you're, let's say you're a W-2 broker, it's your first job out of college and you leave and go work somewhere else and they try to sue you, you're like, oh my God, this is going to be on my permanent record. I'm not going to go for it, You know what I mean? My so, permanent
1: record. This is going to be horrible. I remember my even, permanent
0: record. I always love that Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I
1: remember thinking about that and even just like how big of a deal those are. And that's like 20 years later, you just see how commonplace. It's like, they're, I mean, the courts yep. are like the guardrails of business, right? Like they're what keep people on the road. I mean, just because like you said, somebody yep. runs a file or somebody thinks or right. accuses somebody else doesn't mean it shouldn't change.
0: Exactly. All right. So uh, we'll we'll see how that one pans out. I think you're not going to see Convoy go out of business and you're not going to see DAT held up for a, a monopoly because they're definitely not a monopoly. Um, no. But I mean, they'll probably come, there'll be some kind of settlement on this and everyone will move forward and be on their happy way. So, all right. Today's topic all about how much do freight brokers earn? We get this question a lot and it's a, it's a searchable topic. Um, you know, people ask us a lot like, hey, you know, What should I realistically expect? And, um, you know, we've grouped the type of broker into three big categories, and we've done plenty of content on this. So make sure to check out our blogs and and other YouTube videos that highlight this specifically, you know, just on a big picture. Is, you know, we look at the licensed broker who has their own authority and runs their own business. You have the uh, independent freight agent who's an independent contractor operating on a commission base under a licensed brokerage company. Then you have your W 2 employee that goes, and works for a company that's a brokerage in a variety of roles, maybe sales, maybe dispatch, maybe, you know, could be both. It could be a cradle to grave broker. Um, and I'll give you the the bottom line up front here, how much does a freight broker earn? There's no right answer here because it depends on a whole lot of options here. And um, I don't know a single brokerage that has a cap on earnings for their, like if you're an agent, you there's really no cap on it if you own your own brokerage there's no cap on it if you're a w-2 employee there's probably no cap on it. i mean have you ever you worked in the w-2 sphere before was there a cap on anyone's earnings no
1: but there were ways i think that so there's unlimited potential right but again it's not an easy path to get to those giant numbers but there's definitely not an artificial or you know in other industries, like, that's really common for there to be caps and like what you're going to be able to earn. And even if you're not in a high commission position within our industry, there's still a path to get there if you want to get there. It's just not necessarily the right fit for everybody to be on the sales side to be able to drive those, I think, higher income numbers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm actually going to try and pull up the, uh, the blog that we did here. We broke down, uh, let's see, how much does a freight broker make? Yes. Okay. So um, let's break down the app. We'll we'll do three, the three scenarios. And the example we used here, we'll throw a link in the show notes for the blog. It's really, it's really basic watered down, but um, we'll look at, Let's say you're doing $2 million a year in revenue, right? That's how much your customers are being invoiced. Yep. And we're going to say that you have a 17.5% margin. It's a little above average, but we're going to use it for rough numbers here. So two million in in revenue per year, and that's three hundred and fifty k in profit per year. Gross uh, profit. There are that's your gross profit. So that's basically your your customers paying you minus how much you're paying the trucks. Was what's left over is your brokerage profit. Um, it could be called brokerage revenue. It could be called brokerage profit. At the end of the day, it's your gross profit before before you start spending. Other, you know, you have other expenses or whatnot. So let's start off with your W two. This you could be working at a big box brokerage out of college or maybe a small local one. But either way, they're probably giving you a salary and some kind of a commission percentage. So in this case, we'll say W two probably is probably going to get about forty thousand dollars in salary. Um, I expect that will probably go up slightly over the coming years as wages overall go up. But you tend to see, you know, I would say a percentage of, well, actually, I have it right here. So according to a FreightWave survey, the median pay for W-2 brokers was $40,000 and an average commission rate of 13.2% off their gross profits. Now, I've seen companies that pay 20, they pay 15, 10, whatever. 13.2 is actual data from the FreightWave study and this is, you know, in the last within the last couple of years. So it's fairly recent data. Okay. So forty grand so and call it What does that come 14%. out to be? Yeah. So here's your numbers on it. Let's we'll do the math. Forty thousand base salary, and then that commission percentage off of a 350K girls profit for the year, it's forty six thousand two hundred in commission for the year. That puts your total income at eighty-six thousand two hundred dollars for the year. It's pretty good. It's pretty good money for a W-2 right there, especially if you're young to mid-20s, out of college, you've built up a book of business over a year or so. Um that's awesome. Right. I make a caveat. So So, again,
1: hold on. Did you just add you added that on top? Because some of them you usually don't get the commission until you exceed your base, right? So like on any given month, if you're getting like you said, 40 grand.
0: Yeah, so that that survey is giving the average. So oh, you're going to okay. get a like so for example, I know plenty of companies out there that will pay 20% but you don't get your base anymore, right? Yeah. And then there's some that you'll get a higher base and then a lower percentage but you don't get your commission until you hit a certain number. We're just going with total averages here. Um well let's say we could even round it up. Say you're going to make a $100,000 then, right? Or maybe <laughs> you're going to make $60,000 if you do the same numbers and you lose your base, whatever the yeah. case might be. Okay, um, but you're in that you're in that. We'll say you know seventy five to hundred k. If you're doing two million a year in business, okay, which is that's a pretty sizable book of business. I yeah. tend to find about two million a year in sales is kind of the where a lot of people will hit their ceiling before they have to hire somebody else. That's kind of the number that I've always gone with, and it depends on a lot of things. Load volume, the type of freight you're moving, uh, but we're just gonna use that for the example. So eighty six thousand two hundred is the W two average given that scenario. Now let's look at a um, licensed freight broker, right? Someone that has their own authority, they got their own bond, insurance, all that stuff. Um, you have costs that go into it, right? So you've got your application fee, three hundred bucks, um, your surety bond, which every year you could pay, we'll say, I don't know, maybe four or five grand. There's a big range depending on a lot of things. Insurance, two to three thousand dollars a year annually, depending on how much business you're doing. Um, software, so TMS, email, CRM, accounting software, etc. Uh, it's probably another, you know, four or five grand a year, depending on what you're using. Um, load boards, if you're going to use a couple different load boards, probably a few hundred dollars a month. Um, cash flow or factoring, so. There's a whole lot, whole lot that goes into it, right? And then, so let's let's look at it. So you could say, let's say you did two million a year, and that same seventeen and a half percent margin, you're going to make more like two hundred grand a year in that situation, assuming that, and we're assuming you're not paying for factoring and all that stuff. So otherwise, you're you're going to earn a lot less. But either way, you know, a lot more money, but you're taking on a lot more work, right? You're billing your customers, you're paying carriers, you're dealing with claims, you're doing all of this stuff yourself. But you can see the potential is there. Where's the downside? You don't have a base salary, right? So if you're starting fresh out the gate, you're taking all the risk on yourself and you're making zero until you start getting those first checks in, those first customer payments. Make sense? I think those are the two
1: biggest, I think the biggest difference, right, on that same, to that same point, right, is... If you're going to try to jump to become the licensed freight broker, right, as opposed to the W-2 model, the, the other big, like, number that you don't hear talked about is you've got to go work a full-time job for 40, 50 hours a week, give or take, right, for, like, six months with zero pay until you're going to start seeing money from this, Right. And that's a much different lift. At the same time, you're learning the whole business, right? You're learning how to do the back office stuff. You're learning how to do claims. You're learning how to do all of these things. Um, You're doing them all by yourself. You're learning how to prospect. You're learning how to sell. You're learning how to actually broker freight. Those are all, I mean, that's a large basket of, you know, different tasks you need to learn in a pretty short amount of time. At the same time, you're just burning cash, right? Because it's bringing nothing in. The first six months are just money going out the door, time and effort.
0: Yeah. And one of the things too, and you hit on it with like training and and stuff like that and learning is a lot of these big W2 based companies, they have really, really good training programs in there. So let's say you go in and work for a brokerage. They're going to, they're going to train you on the basics and then they're going to probably partner you up with somebody that's experienced so you can shadow them for a bit and kind of learn. You're going to hear their phone calls. You're going to see what they do day to day, and you're going to learn. You know what do they do in this situation, and how do they handle this issue that pops up. So you don't have that when you're on the. If you just go out there and start your own company, uh, which is why there's a there's a pretty large turnover in folks that start their own brokerage with no experience. It can be done, and we've definitely seen it done, and we've helped people do that in the last couple of years. Um, but it's a much lower success rate than. If you're being, if someone's holding your hand along your journey when you get started off, so that's your trade-off. Uh, <clears throat> lastly, I want to look at the the 1099 agent. So, you know, agents, you know, to to be a good agent, you, you've probably already worked in the W two sphere or space before. You've been trained by somebody because. I don't know a whole lot of companies that'll take on an agent that doesn't have experience and doesn't already have customers and stuff like that. What do you, Um, what do you look for? But the way that that works is
1: before you jump into how it works too, just what do you look for when you're bringing on an agent, just quick high level, what are the characteristics or?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a a lot of it is going to come down to two main things. Um, Are you experienced? So, you know, you're a self starter and you not, you already know brokerage so you can hit the ground running and then, number two, what does your book of business look like? So, do you have a portable book of business? Can you bring it with you from day one? Or <clears throat> you might have a couple of situations every now and then where maybe somebody can't bring their book of business due to a non solicit agreement or something like that. But they've already built up a book in the past and they're confident that on a straight commission agreement or situation, they know that they can hit the, you know, they can hit pound the phones and within a few weeks, they're going to start drumming up some business and getting some freight moves. So, Um, that's, I mean, for me, it's, do you, can you manage yourself without Mm -hmm. someone having to hold your hand? So you know how to do this, you know how to do that. You're going to start working in the morning when you know you have to be there. You're going to handle your issues when they pop up. Um, And that all comes down to experience. And the other part is, do you have business to bring with you? Those are the two main things. All right. So if, if you find yourself in the agent world, and I would say it's probably the least common, uh, it's a, it's a, you'll find, you'll see here with the stats, it's you'll usually make a little bit more if you do that, but it's um, a lot of folks, they think I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna go start my own brokerage because um, I don't want to give up a percentage of my earnings to a company. Uh, we're, when, when you look at it with the agent model here, we'll look at an average of, um, let's say you make a 70% commission. That, that's pretty much what your, your big hitters are gonna, um, you're gonna get paid if you're a, a good broker being an agent for a company. Um, so that seventy percent on those same numbers comes out to closer to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Now, again, not everyone's doing two million a year, and not everyone's doing seventeen and a half percent margin. These are just we picked a scenario, picked an average, and we, we rolled with it. Um, but you can see that based on what you're doing, and um, you know the how much experience you bring to the table, and what tasks you're doing, your income is going to be adjusted with that. So, um, you know. I want to go back to the licensed broker, right? That's assuming that they're one person and they haven't scaled yet. They haven't hired employees and they haven't grown that, which is really what I want to drill into today, right? Is So let's say, you know, you are that licensed broker and you're not, yeah, I've kind of hit that ceiling. I don't have time to do any more business. I'm doing 2 million a year with all my customers. So what do I do next? And should I bring on agents? Should I bring on W-2? Should I bring on operations people? Do I hire an accountant? All that different stuff. Now, how do how do you structure their compensation package in a way that's fair to them, makes sense for you, and is going to keep them around for the long term. So did we miss anything in the, in the big three categories of people in brokerage, or you think that's a pretty good summary there?
1: No, I think that's a really good summary. I think what we should add a little bit is what um, some of the next positions you would need to look to pay when you're going to bring somebody on or what they even look like at just some other companies of structures and just how those sit, you know what I mean? So like when you see some of your larger agents, right? How are they structured? What do their teams look like? How many people versus how many dollars in revenue to just get some ballparks and what does their structure look like?
0: Yep. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you some pretty good specific examples or I'll give you generalizations. Okay. So the first hire that I always recommend and I find to be the most, the the best payoff is gonna be someone that does operational and administrative duties for you. Okay. So if you are, if whether you're an agent or you're a broker and you've reached your, your limit, I, I don't have time to bring any more business on because of X, Y, and Z tasks that I have to do. Those are the tasks that you're gonna want to hire for that free up time for you to go sell more and get more business out of your customers and to to go land an additional customers. So basic things to start with are having them shadow you and then do little things like track and trace sending out rate confirmations tracking down uh, paperwork from carriers to get them paid and to invoice your customers little stuff like that check calls right you're it's very very simple and there's not a lot of re- there's not a lot of risk if something goes wrong there because it's those are things that you in your free time can then fix later on if you know if paperwork wasn't tracked, you know, or tracked down in a, in a fast enough time or whatever, right? But it's not like they're screwing up a customer relationship. So yeah. I love that basic track and trace operations tool and then you could, or that role, and then you could take that person and grow them into like carrier sales or dispatching where they're actually selling your loads to carriers, right? Once they're comfortable mm-hmm. talking to drivers on the phone and talking to dispatchers, now they've got that relational piece down. They can start to understand how does the market work with rates and what do carriers actually care about when it comes to a location that they're being sent to or the time of the week. And you can grow that operations person into a true carrier rep where there's, they're out there sourcing carriers, whether it's searching load boards or out, outbound calling carriers in a certain area uh, or whatnot, right? Because that still is freeing up more time for you to get more freight out of your customers and getting additional customers. I love that first hire. That's that's my my biggest rec- recommendation. What I hate is when people say, "I'm just going to hire agents now. i going to go out there and get a bunch of agents or a bunch of sales reps and let them do all this work." And it is like it's a huge, huge mess to get into that point. So well, they also, you got to remember, like, when you're hiring companies. somebody, it takes time out of your day to train them and manage them. So
1: and and there's the highest. That's my thought process on it that role has like the highest attrition too, because even if you look at the very large companies with thousands of people, the turnover is all on the sales side. There's way lower turnover on every other role within the company. So like when you just outsource that, not only do you not have anybody day to day managing the highest turnover position, but also like the likelihood that they're going to build something without you being the driving force behind it is just very small. Like it's just not likely
0: yeah and so I want to move into this. So once you've got your operations piece solidified, so maybe you've got you know two to three folks in there that are doing operations and administrative duties for you, there will come a time when if you choose to, you can hire on account managers or account executives and again, they can do they could I've seen people that do it like two main different ways. The first way is I'm gonna bring on people to handle the the day-to day, Business with my existing customers, I'm still their main point of contact. I'll still be an escalation point, mm-hmm. but I'm going to hand off these day to day bidding or you know handling the quoting or you know loads that come in to an account manager. Right, they're managing my existing account. I trust them. They're they're articulate on the phone, things like that. Um, or you may want to hire somebody and let them start that way, but then give them the opportunity to go out there and sell themselves. Right, try to build their own book of business. And either way, whenever you do that, whether they're getting their own customers or they're going to start helping with yours, you then just kind of become the proxy sales manager, right? So Mm -hmm. not only are you, are you managing your, your business or managing your customers? Now you've become a sales manager for people that are inside of your company. And as you grow that sales team and you add more and more people, then you, then you find a need for a sales manager to replace you because sales management can take up a lot of work because it's, it's not just, hey, I want to make sure that uh, I'm their boss, they're here on time. No, a good sales manager is a mentor, is a coach, can help develop these folks when they run into situations that they, they've never handled before. And we often find people think that their best sales rep will make a great sales manager, and that's not the case. It's often like the opposite. Some of them could be really good. You know, they're they're decent at sales, but they're more effective in the coaching, mentoring, and management side than actually getting out there and hustling, grinding, and getting new business. Have you have you seen that where people think that I'm just going to take my best sales guy and make him a sales manager? Have you run of that before? I'd say, well, I'd say it's the most
1: common. And one of the reasons it's very common is because even in an organization, like people want upward mobility. And also like not everybody wants to stay in the sales role forever. Like they want to be able to eventually not, honestly, some of them don't want to manage a book, a business for their whole career. It's stressful. It's a lot of work. And especially at some of these larger companies, they want that carrot to be able to offer their reps, Hey, sell enough. And then you can go and be a manager and then you can go and, you know, oversee the people. But to your point, those characteristics of a good manager are very different from a top performing sales rep. It doesn't mean that one person doesn't have both, but they are completely different skill sets.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So, I want to we've we've listed a bunch of different positions here, right? Track and trace, dispatch, carrier sales, account manager, you know, someone getting their own book of business. How how do you pay them? How do you compensate them, right? And you've got to look mm-hmm. at the biggest rule of thumb here, is that whatever you're paying this person, it should result in more profit for you at the end of the day than it costs you to hire that person, right? And it's not an immediate result, Mm -hmm. but give it three, six months, you should be seeing a return on your investment for paying these people, right? So let's start all the way at the bottom. Track and trace, right? Very, very basic level job here and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to spit out some, some numbers here and they could change drastically if you're listening to this six months from now, because wages have changed. Right. And just, it, it all depends on what these people are doing, but I would say like, I I remember it used to be like 12 bucks an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, you might be at like 15 bucks an hour now for like a basic track and trace person that maybe they're only doing it part time. Right. They're just doing some check calls. They're making sure that rate confirmations are sent out, things like that. Um, what do you think for that basic role? They're not selling loads; they're just they're just doing basic tracking. Yeah. Trace. What do you think?
1: I see the weird thing with those is I see a lot of those being outsourced now, or they're a training role. The thing is, when you do it as a training role, you can usually outsource it for much cheaper than you're paying somebody to work for you for 40 hours, right? So the people that I see that are full time that do it temporarily yeah. before they become, you know, a dispatcher or a load cover, you know, personnel on the carrier side care sales rep like they're probably right around there i mean like 600 a week maybe five 600 a week maybe but again when they're like a w2 they're usually closer to like a 40 or 45 because you really can't you can't really live much less than that like again you're now seeing that like a lot of other just tasked jobs are even paying that amount so it's a kind of moving target it definitely also depends where you are in the country where they are in the country Like I can, I've seen, I've had, you know, some people that have done this for me for five, 600 a week, but again, that's part time. They know this niche. So I think every situation is a little bit different and it's kind of.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to add to that. You hit on a good point is that it's probably part of a training program or part of their training and development. I agree. Um, I think it's going to take somebody about six months to really fully become good in freight brokerage, whether it's in sales or dispatching. And part of learning that is going to be the, the basics of track and trace. So you, you might have somebody that's only doing it for a couple of months as they're learning the operation speed. So maybe it's not uncommon um, if it's part of your development and training program. Maybe they are making 40 to 45. But the goal is... They're only going to do it for a little bit, right? There may be a couple of months before they move into dispatching and carrier sales and things like that. Um, So I'm gonna. That's gonna bring us to our next part: is how much do you pay these folks that are selling your loads to the carriers? And there's a couple different methods of thought on this: is do I put them on commission or do I not put them on commission? And you know, there that's it's a point of debate. But I I'm I'm a big fan of if you can give. If you can some somehow find a way to incentivize your your folks with commission, um, so that way they know when their hard work is put in, they're going to reap some of the benefits of that. I'm a big fan of that. So I've seen folks that, depending on the margin that they can sell a load for, they're they're going to get you know um, a percentage commission on that as long as they're hitting a certain goal, right? Because we don't want to just sell a, a hundred loads and make fifty bucks on each one, and then get to you know we're going to make. X amount percentage on because that's not healthy business. But if you set a goal like, hey, I want you to do, and I want you to cover $10,000 worth of margin this month and I want it to be at at least 12% or 15%, whatever that goal is that you set internally. And then if you do that, we're going to pay you a percentage commission off of all those loads that you sold plus your base salary. And I think that's a great way to do it because it's going to develop people because not only are they good at the operations and dispatching side, they're learning part of that sales piece, right? Because you got to remember, even when you're talking with carriers, I know that we're not technically, you're not really selling the load to a carrier. We call it that, but you're, you're like you're hiring them. You're not selling it to them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're hiring them. Uh, but we call it selling because it comes down to negotiating rates and figuring out what's important to that carrier and, and building relationships with that carrier. Um, but I'll tell you what I've seen for that carrier sales or that dispatcher role where they're covering freight, is again, you're gonna probably have that base salary of maybe 40 to 45K, maybe 50K, depending on what kind of experience you bring to the table. And then you might see like a five or 10% commission added in there if they're hitting a certain kind of goal, right, um, because you gotta remember they, they have to be adding value to you. So these are, they're, by doing this job, they're covering freight and creating profit for your business that you otherwise would not have been able to produce without them being there, so. Um, I don't think you should commission them too high, but I like giving them a little bit of commission to show them that, hey, this is a big piece of the, of the, uh, you know, supply chain, I guess of the the transaction here is getting these loads covered with quality carriers at a good margin. What do you think?
1: Same thing. I think there should always be a, a either a bonus or some type of commission or some type of incentive that's variable aligned with performance, because again, it keeps their interests in line with yours as the business owner and lined with the other people in the organization, right? Do more, operate at a higher level. You get more profit. The company gets more profit. Everybody does better, right? Share in the.
0: Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, let's, let's move into the sale. Actually, you know, before I hop into it, I want to say this, if you, anyone listening, let give us your feedback too. let us know and you can be candid about it. You don't have you don't have to tell us um, you know you don't have to tell us what company you work for or your name. Yeah. We're just we're curious about what kind of comp packages <clears throat> are you guys seeing out there. Whether it was a job offer for a company or maybe your existing position or a promotion you may maybe looking at. I'm curious what everyone out there is is offering. So let us know, send us a message or um, just email us or whatnot. Now sales, right? There's two different sides, right? Are you managing someone else's account? Or is it your own account? And you're typically going to see a different, you're going to see a different commission offered to a sales rep if they brought on that customer themselves or if it was assigned to them because, you know, they're managing it for the brokerage or a different broker, right? Those um, are very different things. Too. I, I, I- I'm going to say, like, I've seen, what's that? I was just saying they're
1: very different and I see them get treated often the same and they are not even close, right? If you brought that business in versus you are managing it, there are two very different skill sets involved in ending up in that position.
0: Yeah. That's why like I've seen, if you bring in the customer yourself, I've seen 25, 30% commission being offered. Uh, and that might have a base pay tied to it. It might be a draw on your commission. So once you hit that number, it's, you know, it's just a straight commission. Um, but then, if you did not bring that customer on, if it was assigned to you, you're maybe more like fifteen percent. Right? I mean, it. And again, it all depends on exactly what the roles and responsibilities of that individual are. Are they also covering the freight? Are they trying to drum up new business? Are they just strictly taking the the business that comes in daily or weekly from your customer? And you know, trying to price it out accordingly. You know, there's a there's a big spectrum of roles and responsibilities there, Um, but yeah, and and that range of commission will will sift with it. But you can, you know, the the people that are really good in sales and and building up their book, you can make a really really good living by putting your your, you know your blood, sweat, and tears and effort into just trying to grow and grow and grow. Because think about that percentage right there, right? And you have no risk as that employee, right? You're not, Mm -hmm. you're not worried about paying out claims, you're not worried about a customer not paying a $50,000 invoice or whatever, right? You may not get commission on it, but you have a secure, stable job and you can just earn a big chunk of commission for doing a lot of work. Now, again, it's 25, 30%, it's not 50 or 60 or 70, but you were trained, right? They showed you how to do everything. You've got a, an office to work in, a computer, a phone, a desk, all that stuff. But uh, have you ever seen above 30 when it comes to the W-2 side with anybody that you've worked mm. with?
1: Mm, uh, I might have seen a 35, but I'm rare. And I, on the other spectrum, I've seen the opposite too. Like I've seen some much higher bases for older tenured like account reps, people that have been, you know, 15 years in the industry, right? 20 years 10 years seven even right their their bases are closer to like 70 but you know even 80 but their commissions are you know in the single digits like maybe six seven five eight right they end up right around that same average to be honest like i feel like their total comp ends up being just below 100 um or right around there they have the ability to like kick it over that but that's pretty much the range that i've seen
0: yeah, so that's your I mean that's that's your sales people. I mean, and like you said, I want to add to what you said too is some of these people that have been in it for 10, 15 years, they might be getting an annual increase on their base pay, which could contribute to that higher that higher pay right there. So, the next, well the final one I want to head on is your sales manager, right? Um, this is somebody that you absolutely need to give a strong base to. But they need to have a lot of skin in the game when it comes to numbers because they are responsible for the success or failure of their sales team. So all those individuals that they're managing and, and overseeing, they, their income should be directly tied to the performance of that team. So there should be goals put in place and maybe quotas, goals, you know, however you work it out. Um, and if they meet that criteria, that's going, you know, that could trigger a bonus or whatever. Um but I, what I, what I've seen in sales managers is that base. You might have someone that's getting closer to a six figure base salary, but their expectations on the numbers that they're expected to produce for their team are pretty high. Yeah. Um, and I've seen you know, you know, you should see each you know each person on your team on average should be producing you know maybe fifteen k a month in profit, right? And if you're not doing that, you know, you don't hit. You're, you're not meeting our as a company, and you're gonna have to answer to why somebody is still working at this company six, nine months later when they're not hitting a certain weekly or monthly goal, right? You so you have you've got a lot of responsibility not just to develop your your folks on your team, but you've got to answer for them too, right? And you should be able to tell the owner of the company or your boss if it's that large of a company, <clears throat> why is this person doing so well and that person's not doing so well, right? You should really get to know what's working and what's not, because the, the great thing about a good sales manager is they're a huge asset to a business owner because they have a good pulse read on what's working and what's not working in the company. So when they want to grow or add more people, they should have a voice in that discussion like, hey, this has been working. I want to do more of this. That's what I recommend. This is not working. We should nix that. Um, what have you seen for the commission side of it? I mean, it's going to range depending on a ton of stuff, size, scope of work, um, have you seen just like a percentage wise or goals I got to hit with bonuses? What, is, what does that look like I in, see, in your experience?
1: Mostly, it's a pretty high base with a bonus that'll be up to like probably between five and fifteen percent of their total comp. So, like they're making a hundred to a hundred and ten based on their experience. We'll say. 85 to, you know, 120 based on experience, ability, how many people they're managing is also a big thing, right? Some sales managers have the same title, but they were literally over an office of 75 or 150. Some offices even bigger than that. Some, you know, I would say you shouldn't really have a sales manager unless you have at least a dozen or so people. And I'd say, you know, in the smaller teams, you're probably at the 85, but again, and they're almost always aligned with growth. Like you get your bonus if we hit our target of growing 10% this year or 15% this year or growing market share by this amount of loads, right? It's usually a specific objective metric when you hit it at the end of the year or at the end of the quarter, they get paid out, you know, a portion of that bonus.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I want to add one last thing before we move on here is um, you talk about growth, right? I've seen some profit sharing plans at brokerages where if the company hits a certain milestone or goal of, Hey, we grew by 20% since last year, um, you could take a percentage of that growth and pay out everyone in the company, you you know, depending on what their role and their, their total compensation is, you know, that way everyone from accounting to, Administration to carrier reps, account managers, track and trace, sales manager. Everyone gets a little bit of the, you know, they get a, a little piece of the of the the big victory pie. There, like, hey, we had a great year, and it, it's because of all of us that we were able to do this. So yep. that's my last note like- there on on and whatnot. So we talked about a lot of costs and what it could cost to hire people, and you said it's a lot of it's outsourced. So that's why I wanted to. I recommend this to a lot of the folks that I work with. Is you should at least look into the the concept of the nearshore staffing, and you know, obviously, Lean's one of our big partners here. Um, so, Lean is an industry leader in nearshore staffing with offices in South America and now over in the Philippines, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, technology development, business development, sales, marketing, customer service, and a ton of other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your freight brokerage or your agency visit them online at www.leangroup.com. Can't recommend them enough. There's a lot of potential cost savings there. These folks are already trained up on the basics of brokerage and transportation. You just have to plug them into your organization's SOPs, your software, and all the little intricacies. But definitely a great value add there and a way to save some money. So three questions today from our listeners. First one is, how do carriers understand what rate they need for a load? So you know you're talking to a carrier on the phone, and um, you know they tell you I want two thousand, and so you're wondering like what goes into that. So I'll give you the basics of it. Um, they have costs, fuel, um, truck payments, insurance. There's a ton of stuff that goes into it, uh, and then they got to make money for themselves, right? So that's that's a kind of the basic formula. But you also have to think about where are they going to, right? Are you sending them to Florida when there's no produce coming out of Florida at that time of the year? Or are you sending them to Florida when there's a ton of high paying freight coming out of Florida that time of the year? So that's the kind of stuff that goes into it. It's not just that specific load. It's kind of what position you're putting them into for their next load. Um, So those are some of the things I think about if you're sending someone into a, an area that does not have freight coming out they're going to want more money because they have to make well, up here's, for what they're going to get on their next stop uh, here's next a great run.
1: I mean to just simplify right so you got your cost they need to be a certain benchmark for a truck to be able to move it but then you've got the market supply and demand where i'm at is a really good example because i used to ship down here so when you ship things to the keys nothing is coming back out so when you're sending a truck you know 200 miles or 150 miles and to no man's land you got to pay them all of the empty miles to get to their next load, right? So it's not just necessarily what's going on in the market, but you also want to take a look at the demographics and where you're setting your driver. To your point,
0: definitely. Yeah, it's a south like the Keys is a huge one. Yeah, you're probably not if you're going to Key West, you're probably not getting a load out of Key West. You're probably driving <laughs> driving a handful at like four, five, six hours back up. Um, all right, next question: How do I check my safety rating? Uh, This actually came from a broker. So I want to let you know as a broker, you don't have a safety rating. But for a carrier, the FMCSA's website will give you your safety rating if it's available. Um, A lot of the third-party plugins, too, will have it in there. Uh, If you're using like a a carrier monitoring system or vetting system, you'll see if it's a conditional or a satisfactory or unsat or whatever. Um, But yeah, FMCSA has all that data. So check it out. Last one. Can my brokerage and trucking company have the same name? Yeah, but I, I find that most people will separate them. They might call one logistics for the brokerage and one trucking or transportation for the the carrier side. Um, you don't want to. You want to make sure that your customers understand the difference between your brokerage and your carrier side. You don't want to be that broker that represents yourself as a carrier to a customer, and then you go and broker that load out. Right? That they could say like. You double broker, it. you told me you were a carrier with trucks and you gave it to another carrier. Um, there's, a, there's a fine line there that you should not cross. But I have seen a lot of companies that will have, they'll still call themselves the same name. They might have it under, you know, they might have it under a, let's say it's ABC Logistics or, you know, right? But they might they might be like ABC Logistics trucking Inc. Mm -hmm. And then ABC Logistics Brokerage, Inc. And they just call themselves, hey, it's Nate from ABC Logistics or Nate from ABC, right? Um, And that's just for simplicity, I suppose. But most people are keeping them separate. So, Um, And on top of that, your your authority is going to be different. You're going to have a different MC number for both. So keep that in mind. But people have DBAs or doing business as very often where they're, you know the name is they. They do business as a different name than their actual legal entity, and that's that's pretty common. Well, that's a good. Good discussion. Good episode today, man. Yeah. Um, you got anything else on the topic today? I do not. It was a action packed. I think
1: it was full of a lot of a lot of questions we get asked. I think we covered in that episode. I mean every single one of the things you kind of went through money-wise, what people are making, we get questions on a daily, weekly basis. So I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And again, like you pointed out, I mean, even if you're not, if you're not considering outsourcing or using nearshoring as an option, it's great to know what the costs are, right? So you can compare options. So you can see what it costs you to pay somebody there versus here versus local versus remote. They're all a little bit different and they all have their pros and cons.
0: Yeah. I agree, man. Knowledge is power. Any closing thoughts here? Yep.
1: Whether you believe you can
0: or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills! That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out
1: on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the contact us form on our site and
0: we'll see you next week.